some lovely presents. Each day, I'll pop in via Santalite from the Grotto in Lapland to update you on all our Christmas preparations. So don't miss my festive updates right here in the Common Room. Now on Radio 3 this Sunday morning, here's Carol Mang with Mind Matters. Good morning and welcome once again to Mind Matters, our series of bridge talks and lectures. I'm Carol Meng. Today we will have a look into the U.S. Declaration of Independence introduced by the American missionary Reverend Elijah C. Bridgman of the American Board of Commissioners of Foreign Missions in 1838. With the 2026 approach marking the 250th anniversary of the Declaration, Professor Kendall Johnson from the American Literature at HKU School of English. We'll explain how the Declaration offers a perspective in understanding the longer history of Chinese-U.S. commercial and diplomatic relations. Bridgman presents a loose but substantial translation of the Declaration in Chapter Four of *A Brief Account of the United States of America*, or <laughs> The first edition of 1838 was very much shaped by historical events culminating in the First Opium War. He began writing the account while living in Canton, and employed Chinese engravers to produce its woodblocks as tensions intensified over opium smuggling. In 1837, Bridgman secretly cashed the blocks on opium ships anchored at Linton Island before shipping them to his ABCFM compatriot, the Reverend Ira Tracy, in Singapore for printing. Bridgman then published two revised editions: the first from Hong Kong in 1844. And the second from Shanghai in 1861, the year of his death. In regard to the diplomatic stakes of trade, Bridgman's translation is Janus-faced in addressing Qing's Qing readership, as he presents trade as the right and duty of being a good neighbor. On the one hand, he explains the U.S. revolution against King George III in ways that align the U.S. with the Qing sovereignty in promising trade that benefits citizens and those on the states. Territorial frontiers. On the other hand, Bridgman implicitly warns the Qing that regulating trade through the Canton system sets it apart from all other good neighbor trading partners of the United States. Of course, the literal existence of trade, its action, its social realization, is not the concern here. Trade was going on; it was the terms of regulation and how that related to understandings of sovereignty. Bridgman's revision reinforces the moral terms. Of trade as not only a right but an obligation, echoing a legacy of philosophy and natural history shaped by two golden rules of the New Testament: the Great Commission to preach the word to every living creature, and the Great Commandment: love one's neighbor as oneself. The following presentation unfolds in three parts. First, it summarizes how, in the original Declaration, free trade was an important premise upon which the colonists appealed to the sovereign powers of the earth. To recognize their sovereignty apart from Great Britain. To this end, the British King's embargoes and blockades on American colonial ports and his incitement of frontier violence by merciless savages amounted to tyrannical abuse that invalidated the King as the quote 
head of a civilized nation. The second part sketches the intercultural scene of print activity and Canton amidst the Qing regulation of trade and opium smuggling by Western merchants before the First Opium War. In 1838, Bridgman reframed the Declaration to tout the expansive commercial frontier of the United States while calling the Qing to embrace the moral duty of expanding its territorial union domain by deregulating Canton. One major revision Bridgman makes in doing this is to replace the stereotypical merciless frontier savages of the original declaration with a stereotypical noble savagery that he designates as Maoren. Bridgman's comparative savagery here draws the U.S. and Qing together as potential good neighbors while admonishing the Qing on the moral duty to trade. The third part probes how Bridgman, in his presentation of the Declaration of Independence, echoes these ABCFM allegories of global print evangelism, specifically the above-mentioned Great Commission and Great Commandment. Recognizing these allegories shows how Bridgman's address of the Qing as potential good neighbors reflects a long array of debate over the basis of jus gentium, law of na nations, and its supposed shading into positive international law in the 19th century. Because this is part of a longer project, the presentation moves swiftly towards conclusion by acknowledging the ethical double bind of Chinese assistants who aided Bridgman in bringing a brief account into print publication. This double bind sheds light on the overtly exclusionary principles of international law set by W.A.P. Martin in the later 19th century through his translation of Henry Wheaton's Elements of International Law as Wang Wo Gong Fa. Of course, scholarship on the Declaration is immense, parsing events leading to Thomas Jefferson writing the Declaration in June 1776, debate and revision of the Second Continental Congress, and John Dunlop's printing of broadsides for dissemination across the 13 colonies, across the Atlantic Ocean, to the United Kingdom, and states of Europe, whom signers hoped to court as potential allies. With a focus on consolidating domestic national unity that achieved sovereignty, Carl Becker and Gary Wills in 1922 and 1978 respectively offered a history of ideas behind its publication, highlighting John Locke and Scottish empiricism as a key inspiration. Other scholars have probed the Declaration's aesthetics of eloquence and oratorical performance in adapting classical Republican governance to virtues of marketplace competition. And Pauline Mayer, has explained how the Declaration grew into a sacred symbol of national origin and patriotic pride only decades after the Treaty of Paris in 1783 and the aftermath of War of 1812 and the defeat of Napoleon. As the integrity of the United States stabilized amidst compromises over slavery, upset and reconfigured in the shadow of federal Indian policies of Indian removal, supported by Supreme Court decisions. Now, to understand Bridgman's Chinese language version of the Declaration, it helps first to look at the original in a global network of international diplomacy as proposed by David Amitraj, Mark Weston Janis, uh, and others. Both emphasize uh, Amir Vital's influential The Law of Nations, 1757, copies of which Benjamin Franklin distributed among delegates in the spring of 1776 to shape the Declaration's primary purpose to express the international legal sovereignty of the United States by appealing to other sovereign states 
for recognition. This primary purpose of establishing recognition from other states is today eclipsed by what has become the Declaration's most recognized language on universal individual rights premised on natural law. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Armitage Janus and J.G.A. Pocock have pointed out that such individual rights were predicated on the state securing them as a sovereign state as recognized by other states. The Declaration thus makes a case for state sovereignty with deference and respect, quote, to the opinions of mankind and appealing to the established powers of the earth to determine, based on facts, that the U.S. indeed deserved the power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliance, and conduct commerce. In pursuing its primary objective, then, the Declaration proclaims revolution on conservative terms. The goal is taking up among powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them. Such freedom implied that U.S. independence was predicated on interdependence among those existing powers of the earth. Now, the primary state-making purpose of the Declaration registers in how the 27 charges leveled against King George III overlooks slavery and characterizes merciless savages. The Declaration makes its case as if it were a civil trial following William Blackstone's definition of a declaration, narration, or count by which a plaintiff sets forth its cause. The Declaration lays out 27 charges in Section 3, all prefaced by he and nine subheadings under number 13 of he of four. Trade features explicitly under the 13th charge, and you have it here, king, for cutting off trade, colonial trade with all parts of the world. Now, the 19th charge is the final one. He has excited domestic insurrection among us, has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Now, the original declaration does not go into detail about how the king cuts off maritime trade. There's no mention of the East India Company, as Bridgman would mention it. Instead, the declaration focuses on military blockades on port cities, hinterland disruption in on the frontier of, by exciting these merciless Indian savages. In sharpening the grievances against the king regarding trade, the primary goal of securing state sovereignty evinces the secondary concern of universal equality of individuals outside the state. As Armitage explains, Article I of the Peace of Paris, 1783, definitively concluded the Declaration's purpose when Great Britain acknowledged the U.S. as sovereign. How then to resolve the tension between the 13 sovereign independent states that had rhetorically presented themselves as one people? To do so, the U.S. Constitution set aside the equality of humankind in compromising over slavery as the French Revolution unleashed, unleashed universal rights that threatened the premise of centralized federal governance of the 13 states and the priority of preserving property at the center of the U.S. Constitution. It was not until the 1820s, after the War of 1812, 
that the Declaration not only resurrected into American scripture its natural or, national origin, but also became a key tool of civil rights for those deprived of legal standing. The second paragraph's Declaration of All Men Created Equal, featuring in David Walker's appeal to colored citizens of the world in 1829, the Pequot activist and Methodist minister William Appis is an Indian looking glass for the white man in 1830, and in later speeches by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, by Frederick Douglass, and eventually by Abraham Lincoln. Bridgman's declaration does not follow in this line of individual rights activism. Rather, he uses the declaration as a diplomatic tool to forge reciprocal recognition of pure sovereignty with the Qing predicated on trade and diplomacy, as he admonishes them over the consequences of not doing so. In 1838, Ira Tracy from Singapore published Milega Shuo Zhu from Singapore. The body of the text had been engraved in Canton. The title page had probably been carved later in Singapore. It indicates the date as the 18th year of Dungguan's reign, Bridgman, and Liang Zhe are noted as the authors and helpers. In 1844, as I mentioned, Bridgman revised it as he does again in 1861. These dates, 1838, 1844, 1861, mark distinct stages in Bridgman's career. To understand the first phase, it helps to explain what inspired him to go to South China and how his evangelicalism was supported. In 1829, the 27-year-old Bridgman was fresh out of Andover Theological Seminary and joined the ABCFM. The organization, founded in 1810 by conservative standing order ministers, wealthy American merchants, and enthusiastic students. The ABCFM then sent dozens of missionaries across the globe, beyond the nation's borders, into the world. And you have a map here that visualizes and summarizes the extent of missions from 1810 to 1860, the first 50 years. You're listening to Mind Matters, where we just had Professor Kendall Johnson from the American Literature at HKU School of English telling us about the background of the U.S. Declaration of Independence that was introduced in 1838. Next, he will continue to explore the implication and message brought by the Declaration. As this was happening, from headquarters in Boston, the ABCFM administrators oversaw this entire global print network stretching from Bengal to Cherokee lands to Sandwich Islands, then called Palestine and elsewhere. Bridgman and his compatriot David Abiel arrived to Canton in 1830, and the British LMS, London Missionary Society missionary, Reverend Robert Morrison took them under his wing. Morrison had long had a connection with the founders of the ABCFM that began in 1807. When he visited New York and Philadelphia on his way to China, and secured from Secretary of State James Madison a letter of introduction to U.S. merchants there in order to skirt the EIC ban on missionaries. Ironically, the EIC soon employed Morrison as its chaplain and translator. For the next three decades, Morrison worked with fellow British missionaries William Milne, Walter Methurst, and others, 
and Chinese assistance, assistance, most prominently Lang Afa. In addition to translating the Bible and publishing dictionaries, he helped found the Anglo-Chinese College at Malacca, where much of the printing took place beyond the jurisdiction of Qing authorities. In 1820, Morrison formed a friendship with the New York merchant David Washington Cincinnati Oliphant, an anti-opium merchant. They, they lobbied the ABCFM to support missionaries, and in 1832, helped Bridgman found the Canton Mission Press as the newest and smallest ABCFM print station. He collaborated with Lang Afa, whose son Lang Ate he tutored, as he established the Chinese Repository. Ran for 20 years, it was a monthly. First issue in May 1832. In 1833, the ABCFM printer Samuel Wells Williams and Reverend Ira Tracy, for previously mentioned, arrived to augment Bridgman's efforts. Now, what you have here is repository, two main characters of, of my printing, ABCF printing station here, and the actual hand press, not the actual, but the model that Bridgman would have received, funded by the ABCFM and congregations back in New York on Bleecker Street. Meanwhile, in Boston, a new wave of administration was taking over, including Andover graduate Rufus Anderson, who had set up policies regarding well, all the finances of the ABCFM. Should they print? Should they teach? How should they print? During an area of Indian removal of the Cherokees, and as fiscal crisis smashed the economy in 1837. There's time here only to mention that Anderson and Bridgman argued over the best methods of printing Chinese. Bridgman, in cooperation with Morrison and LMS printers, eventually advocated for metallic types that promised, quote, a font of perpetuity, a limitless horizon of production and distribution until, I suppose, the Day of Judgment. Rufus Anderson wanted to economize, advocating for woodblock engraving. As you see here, Robert Morrison also woodblock engraved, or this is his Lord's Prayer. Actually, it is a Lord's Prayer later, but this is the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, xylography, so the carving into these woodblocks. Now, he also wanted to use this and did to produce what he called in the ABCFM Monthly, the Missionary Herald, the first Chinese ever printed in the United States. And that is from this woodblock, set back with Chinese paper to Boston and stamped out on a stereotype plate, a thin piece of metal from which the Sermon on the Mount was printed. And it was then sewn into, stitched into the Missionary Herald, as you see here. Now, the other thing the ABCFM did is write their own history. In 1840, the first major one appeared, written by Ira Tracy's brother, Joseph Tracy. He's credited with in, uh, coming up with the term, The Great Awakening, the title of his 1845 History of American Missions. In 1861, they published together, Rufus Anderson and Joseph Tracy, the memorial volume of the first 50 years of the ABCFM. Now get this, according to the table of productivity, the Canton Mission Press had printed more than 25 million pages in English, Chinese, and other languages over its 25 years in operation. These operations ended at the beginning of the Second Opium War when the entire print station burnt to the ground. As for the comprehensive tally of the ABCFM printing outside the United States, the memorial tallied 1.77 billion billion pages, billion with a B, attributed to 15 printing stations, 45 presses, 
and across 42 languages of the world. Now, in May 1833, as Bridgman inaugurated the second year of the Chinese Repository, he presented a bright prospect of the synergy between trade and print evangelism, looking to the expiration of the EIC monopoly and free trade. Introducing the first issue of the Chinese Repository for that year, Bridgman reached back to his readings at Andover to aver, from what a professor had written, that the Sermon of the Mount and the Book of Proverbs contain the elements of best political economy ever devised, exceeding the volumes of Adam Smith and the statistics of Sabert and Pitkin. The decade would be profoundly disappointing, but did prove that the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself could be very useful in figuring through the diplomatic contradictions of proclaiming free trade while practicing opium smuggling. In the early 1834, Reverend Morrison and his son published the Commercial Guide of 18 1834, and opined that after the expiration of the EIC's monopoly, free trade would flourish and Western merchants could band together and pressure the Qing to deregulate trade and lift sanctions on printing and preaching by foreigners. Instead, the Qing intensified enforcement, targeting Chinese assistance. Liang Afa was again arrested and after his release ended up in Singapore with Ira Tracy. Meanwhile, the Canton Mission Press moved its equipment to Macau, where Bridgman and Williams continued to write, edit, and print. In the next three years, they resorted to hiding publications on Linton Island and its ships anchored there, lamenting the sad irony that op the Opium Depot was preserving their efforts. In the autumn of 1834, things proved especially calamitous. Bridgman delivered two major eulogies. The first was for Reverend Morrison himself, who died of fever on the 1st of October. The second was for William Napier, who died in, so Morrison dies in August. Napier dies in October. Napier had arrived as the British Chief Superintendent of Tr Trade to replace the second committee representative of the EIC. He then roiled the entire Canton system, demanding to meet directly with Qing officials of similar rank rather than Hong merchants. Now, as the political environment deteriorated, Bridgman worked on his brief account which started as one of the several projects associated with the founding of the Society of Diffusion, Diffusion of Useful Knowledge in September of 1834. As the scholar Yao Dao, Dao Tui and others have shown, Richmond depended on Chinese translators and engravers across his versions of this uh, brief account. Um, in 1836, Liang Afa's son, Liang Jiande, had followed the orders of Lin Zisu to translate portions of Hugh Murray's Encyclopedia of Geography. Um, he would later go on to uh, help with translations throughout the Opium War and to, into the treaties. Um, in 1861, in Shanghai, Bridgman printed the final version with the help of Guan Xiaoyi. Um, as for Bridgman's influence, the influence of his account, in 1847, missionaries and shaman reported that it had been distributed to dozens and dozens of literati and men of influence and officials. Um, it influenced directly Wei Yun, uh, who borrowed and published part of it in Hai Guo Tujur, um, and elsewhere. All right, it goes to Japan, comes back, circulates. Now, Bridgman's brief account comprises, comp comprises two major parts. 
and opens with a brief autobiographical preface and an introduction that explains the books, how the book's punctuation marks work. He apologizes for its brevity, characterizing it as a work in progress, to which he invites other contributors to, uh, to follow, very similar to Thomas Jefferson's notes in the state of Virginia in that way. Now, part one consists of 27 chapters, beginning with the New World Discovery, Colonial Settlement, U U.S. Independence, and frames the central governance of the United States in the U.S. Constitution, like it's how it's ordered at the federal and state level. Chapters describe the native peoples of the American continent, trade, agriculture, manufacture, culture, education, book publication, dress, habits. One chapter presents a descriptive overview of the Roman alphabet, Romanized alphabet, and how it works. Part two then gives you a survey of the 26 states uh, describing their topographies, key commodities, institutions of worship and education, technologies of printing, transportation, and agricultural production. Now, what I want to look more carefully at is first his short preface that showcases how he uses the Sermon on the Mount and some key biblical phrases to set the premise of communication for a global economy of commerce that connects the U.S. to the Qing. Um, so here, here we have Songlai Yi Tianxia Wei Yi Jia Zhongguo Ye Yi Ran Zhizi Wu Zhou Zhishi Jihai Futi Mobi Mobu Ji Tong Ye. I won't torture you further. Um, but I, I do, <laughs> I've read this over and over again. I'm happy to have, happy to read it with you. But the key feature here is what Bridgman is saying is we're all one family, right? And he's basically drawing this broad geographical connection that draws straight on, um, well, a couple key, uh, let's read here. It's fast. His tone is very modest, even humble and friendly in this introduction. Uh, he's disarming and deftly folds the world as a material globe into a unit of humans inhabiting it. It's, ge it's a global geography and a cosmology premised on Christendom, a faith of a universal God that, um, as a philosophy of political economy, this one-body metaphor makes communication, travel, trade, pr printing, the path to realizing equality among all individuals and peoples well, of the world. Now, John Winthrop's model of Christian charity, a famous sermon with the city on the hill of 1630, was just now in these years being rediscovered. And it's unclear whether Bridgman actually saw it or that he very, very well might have. Um, but he's definitely alluding to Matthew 5, 44 and Ephesians 4, 16 that ensures that we must love one's neighbor as ourselves and through God's love, knit all parts of ourselves together as individuals and as faith communities in one body of Christ premised on love. He employs fr phrases familiar to Chinese readers, including some, you know, and also some idioms, but also the way he uses particles. Uh, talk more about the, the style in which these missionaries from Morrison to Methurst to um, Kutzlav to Bridgman and Williams were trying to figure out how to to catch the right type of writing for Chinese readership. Um, and he also, as I mentioned, I think I mentioned, uh, he basically charts the entire narrative of U.S. development in terms of a chronology by using imperial dynasties from the Ming Emperor Hongzhi through Qinlong 
Jia Xing, uh, and finally uh, Dou Guang. He projects this universal body and human family in ways that run counter, of course, to the imperial terms of Tianxia as an ontology of governing spirit rather than territory. The distinctions between Hua and Yi disappear. And of course, the Canton system of regulation uh, becomes something that's anti-neighborly. Now, I'm not going to go into what you all very well know, but you know, I'm drawing um, on well, many scholars who have talked specifically about the tributary system. Um, aspects of Tian Sha as it changed over time. Um, Wang Hui, Gong uh, Wu Wang. Um, now, I'm interested in that too, but um, the ways in which Bridgman's making a diplomatic intervention and draws on scholarship by uh, Zhu Guangyin and Lydia Liu, who have offered a parallel attempt by uh, Lin Zixu to align Tian Sha with the Law of Nations of Vitell. And it a letter to the Queen, 1839, that asserts that opium smuggling must indeed rouse indignation in every human heart, Ren Qing, and violate all terms of reasonable governance, Tian Li. Right? Uh, Bridgman's not doing that, although he's writing this brief account at the same time that this letter to the Queen of Queen Victoria is being composed. Right. So one of the key tensions I'm going to come back to is, you know, what's the difference? Like, what's this one body? idea, this one-body solution that Bridgman's coming up with. In calibrating the original declaration's layers of global significance, including authors and auditors, David Armitage characterizes it as an event, a document, and the beginning of a genre. That was Professor Kendall Johnson from the University of Hong Kong. I'm Carol Meng, and I invite you to join me next Sunday morning on Mind Matters.